something beside me A light to the kerosene And the places aren't real anymore And the faces don't say anything Hello and welcome to Devil's Chess Club. I'm Aaron Good. To get early access to episodes of Devil's Chess Club, subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon. This episode is available to everyone courtesy of Four Died Trying, which premiered on November 22nd on Apple TV and other streaming services. You can now buy the prologue and the first chapter will be available around New Year's Day. I also want to encourage everyone to check out a panel discussion on January 7th, it's called Genocide and Empire. It is being put on by the International Center for 9-11 Justice and UK Column. I'm among the speakers and who also include Richard Falk, Kevin Ryan, Vanessa Bealey, uh, Pierce Robinson will be presenting, I believe. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in war and peace and the major issues of the day to check out this panel on January 7th. Now it's time for today's Devil's Chess Club. And we're going to be talking, David Talbot and Bryce Green and me, we're going to be talking about the end of 2023 and what we have to look forward to in 2024 and all of the crazy things that are happening right now. David Talbot, it's the end of 2023. How are you doing? Thank God. Here I am. <laughs> Bryce Green, you're in Bloomington. How's it going? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Looking forward to the new year. Uh, 2023 was garbage and 2024 is going to be uh, more garbage, but I'll be a little bit more prepared for it, for it I guess. Uh, yes, this has been an amazing year. And um, I thought that if anybody had any uh, comments on the significance of this, because we're this will the, the show will come out. We'll put this video on the Ford Die Trying website there. We'll make it available for people there. And as we sit around and look at the lack of statesmanship in the United States that we have suffered since the 60s, really, there hasn't been any real statesmanship since, since JFK, in my opinion, uh, from, from the U.S., uh, it's a time to reflect on this. Here at the end, as we watch things crumbling uh, in 2023, uh, David Talbot, you've written lots of books on the 1960s and on these, these leaders and the movements around them. What do you think is the significance of these four men and how they how they their absence uh, echoes today because of the uh, just what we see this lack of statesmanship and this empire that can't reverse course? I mean, how, how does that how does this seem sixty years later? Well, I'm so glad this uh, film series has come out is coming out uh, when it did because it reminded me of what could have been. And you and Bryce were probably born during this era. <laughs> You're younger. Uh, the America that you could have grown up in, had those four men lived, would have been vastly different, I can assure you. I was a teenager, uh, worked on Bobby Kennedy's campaign 68, 
for the president when he was killed. I was uh, 11 years old when JK was killed. I was a little older when Malcolm X was killed. I was a teenager when uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. Those four men were determined to lead the country towards peace and justice. And when they were killed, the movements that they led were killed also. Uh, I'm not one of those on the left who believes you don't need the leaders. The, you needed those people and others like them. When they cut those people down, I interviewed a number of people who followed the Kennedys, who worked for the Kennedys, uh, Robert McNamara, Arthur Schlesinger, Ted Sorensen, and others. They were like a chicken with the, their head cut off. They didn't know what to do after the two Kennedys were killed. And I suspect that those who followed uh, and were close to Martin and Malcolm felt the same. They didn't know what direction to head in. They didn't know if they were coming for them, like Richard Goodman, who is a speechwriter, advisor, JFK, and to Bobby. He went into uh, arms training, started uh, to train for the revolution he thought was coming after they killed Bobby. They killed Bobby so they thought they were coming, he thought they were coming for him next. Uh, and later married the historian Doris Kearns Goodman, who likes to uh, you know, poo-poo all this. But the people around Kennedy, and I'm sure the same was for Malcolm and Martin, didn't know what to do, were deathly afraid for their own life. Jackie Kennedy took her two kids, John and Caroline, overseas, married Aristotle Onassis, the shipping mogul, because she said they're killing Kennedys in this country. And she went overseas for the protection she knew that billionaire would afford her and her children. So I think, yes, you, Aaron, and you, Bryce, would have grown up in a very different country if these men had succeeded politically. Yeah, I think uh, it's you can't do a counterfactual historically, but I, it does seem that this was a real turning point and that the culture of uh, the world that was emerging at this time in with optimism after the defeat, apparent defeat of fascism, although it was secretly incubated in the U.S. national security state, as these men would find out, but that there was a hope at the end of World War II. And uh, even after the Cold War began to thaw a little bit, in the late 50s and with Kennedy's presidency, um, it, there was there was more hope. And that was what they really, it, that hope was anathema to the plans that the planners of the U.S. empire had in mind. And um, so they used their veto power over uh, over democracy to just take these, these people off the board. And uh, as a result, they won the day and their law, their gain was our loss. And because it warped our institutions and let them continue to warp and rig everything in their benefit and everything in their benefit until they created uh, enough opposition uh, just by virtue of their own greed and, and lust for power. Uh, eventually, you create the forces of your own demise. That's what happens to empires. And that's what they did. And these four figures, I think they haunt. They haunt the U.S. They haunt the oligarchy that killed them or the, the it's now their descendants who are the oligarchy these days, pretty much. Uh, and, and here, but the fundamental issues and things they were talking about, a world where there's some justice in the international system, is uh, that people are still fighting for it. And everything that we think of, or not, not we, the three of us, but 
what seems to be bad news to the establishment as they follow world events is really that same struggle playing out only this time uh the 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 old the apex of the empire is losing i believe and that's what made this year a really crazy year because that's really the turmoil that we're seeing which is both exciting and rather horrifying and it's also sad to know that we are not able to we don't seem to be able to impact it it's mostly international actors that are heroically taking on uh, the western imperialism uh, today and that's uh sobering a little sad that we have not been able to do more but uh that's no reason to give up trying <laughs> exactly i mean well, one of the big things that struck me when i first learned about the reality of these assassinations uh well not only is is it how history has been rewritten and how you know there are alternative paths and you know, we were taught we were taught that these were just lone nuts, that this was just random chance that happened. But when you learn that it's more systematic than that, it teaches you something about, you know, how we teach our history, how we interact with media, the power that these narrative makers have over how we govern our lives. Uh, th that was an important lesson. But far bigger than that is the question of what do we do about it? Uh, you know, as a young organizer, you start wondering about, okay, how do we change the world? Okay, well, you pretty you realize pretty quickly that simply just getting out into the street and screaming isn't, you know, really the way to make any sort of change. You realize that institutions are the way to change, that they there need to be persistent structures that are able to take on the existing structures. Uh, but then you learn that there's a clandestine state that is able to intervene in such a way that renders these structures almost, almost useless. I mean, uh, even... Uh, before they assassinate people. You know, we were talking recently about the character assassination. Well, they have so many resources at their disposal that they can use with plausible deniability to character assassinate you. And then they can uh, infiltrate your groups and uh, spread disinformation, cause internecine struggles. They can do all of these sorts of things. So then the question is, well, what do we do about it? And it seems that the first step on that road is to try and learn more about what happened, to try and pry open the state to the extent possible. Uh, but then you realize, again, that the state is such a closed entity that the only way that that's going to happen is, as you say, Aaron, is that the international situation forces it upon them. And, and that leads in some ways to a bit of, I don't know, I don't want to say paralysis, but, uh, you know, it, it's the sort of thing that keeps you up at night. It's like, well, what exactly... What exactly do we do other than plugging along, try and learning as much as we can? Yeah. Well, that's, Stay, I think, another bit, right? That, look, I don't want to be the old fogey says in my day, we had this and that. But yes, I am the old fogey here. And yes, we had the civil rights movement. We had the anti-war movement. Music, we had culture. We had a culture of opposition. We had leaders in the 60s who led us. Uh, we had people in the streets, thousands and thousands of people. So yes, it was uh, both uh, very frightening, very uh, uh, full of conflict, the 60s, early 70s, but we also had huge movements that supported us. And we felt we were, make, we were changing history. That's the one great uh, absence, regret that I feel today is that there isn't a big popular movement in this country for change. And you're right, Aaron and Bryce, we're relying on 
other foreign countries enters abroad to change the U.S. empire. We're not changing it from within. There's no movement within, a peace movement, like there was in the 60s or 70s. There was an upsurge, an uprising after George Floyd was murdered, but that didn't last. Uh, so where is where are these movements today domestically? We're relying on South Africa, which we'll talk about later, the Houthis, for uh, bringing some sanity to the Middle East, if they can. Uh, Ukraine, Russia is going to win there. We all know militarily. And, you know, the right wing in this country, or the Democrats, are going to uh, keep fighting the war till the last Ukrainian is killed. Uh, I have friends who live in Ukraine. Yeah, I have a stake in that country. I just know the misery in that country is happening now. It's a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. And guess what? Russia is going to eventually win, but the military-industrial complex will make a lot of profits, a lot of money from the blood in that country. And the Pope spoke out against military contractors, the uh, military-industrial complex recently. But, you know, are his words being heeded? No. They, they're making obscene props from all the misery, all the suffering in Ukraine and Gaza, uh, these weapon manufacturers. And Biden even crowed about it. How many uh, munitions factories in this country are doing well because of the fighting in Gaza and elsewhere in Ukraine? Uh, it, it's disgusting. This is the country that I was uh, grew up, you know, thought uh, existed when I grew up. It's not the country that you want either and your kids. And our kids. Right. And I, I think that your book uh, that people it's it's not as well known as Brothers or Devil's Chess Club, but um, your book in the light of dying dreams covers a lot of these struggles of the 60s. And uh, it, it's there was there it, it at first it can seem like kind of boomer nostalgia. But I think that there is actually much substance to what you were saying about the way that these groups were able to achieve a lot. I think the subtext there or what happens or, or if you listen to that narrative you, and you understand what happens with Watergate and Nixon goes down, you would almost think that the good guys were going to win. But I think that there's this other struggle that's playing out through Nixon and through Watergate and through Carter where it was really a struggle. It was like a struggle at Mount Olympus between you know oil and international monetary the international monetary system the, the financial system and the elites of uh western europe and japan the capitalist titans really and they were fighting to establish this new system a political economic system which is really the reagan the reagan revolution and the reason i think that that people people don't understand why the 60s really failed because so much of the history that played out was at a higher level a, a struggle that people didn't even necessarily understand was happening it's like there's very few academics that have gotten into this after the fact i think like peter's work and uh, road to 9 11 is one of the better synthesis synthesis syntheses of this whole thing that i've read and i tried to build on that as with my own work but they really did accomplish some things in the 1960s even with all of these assassinations and everything else and they they seem to have won some victories on the surface, but the reality was, which I think is where the liberals and other people need to understand this. It really political economy is is everything, and they 
it was a rolling politico-economic coup that we saw in the 60s and 70s that really we couldn't quite make sense of until until the Reagan revolution was really consolidated a couple of years into Reagan's term. And ever since then, it has been an orgy of greed and uh, imperialism. And now it's coming to its end, this cycle, because that's what happens to those kind of cycles. So another thing I want to talk about here uh, is as uh, related to the end of the year is that we just went through the Kennedy assassination 60th anniversary and there were a couple of good things uh, that were out there if you were paying attention that really put nails into the coffin of the low nut you know the, the low nut thesis of the Warren Commission this one uh, video which I've shown here before but I just want to mention it again where they did a they actually did a a, a pixel by pixel a perfect recreation of Dealey Plaza as much as they could and of the president's limo and where they were sitting so it wasn't one of those rigged things like they did with like Dale Myers on the Discovery Channel years ago this one's actually accurate and I I, I wanted to make a gif of it but I, I couldn't do it today because YouTube censors the video because it's YouTube you really gotta love them for this it's a there's no violence at all in it they just censor it but there's stills from the their website and you see how the magic bullet is basically impossible and the video is is good in that regard so this one really just shows the absurdity of the denialists about uh you know the case for multiple shooters in dealey plaza so that's really cool and the other uh thing that's that many people saw which i think blows a big hole in the warren commission um is that document the documentary on paramount plus uh which is jfk what the doctors saw it interviews all of these doctors who describe wounds that more or less uh, confirm that JFK was shot from the front. I don't think that there's not only that he was shot from the front, but that this had to have been understood and covered up by powerful people so that it wouldn't be widely known that he was shot from the front. So we have this situation in the U.S. where where stories like this have been disproven, more or less. In Russiagate, we just went through another one where it's disproven that like pretty much. I mean, the case, the state was never able to show that any of the things they said were true and then more came out to basically falsify those accounts and yet we're in this state of not knowing what do you what did you think of the aftermath of the of the 60th uh now that we're seeing all of this crumbling and it seems like it's a few weeks ago now it's about a month ago any any more thoughts on this and the 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 sort of strange state of the jfk case as the empire that was behind this is is in such a bad position. I mean, what do we make of the gleams of hope that we saw on the 60th? Well, I give it, I gave a speech on this very subject in Pittsburgh at the WEC, uh, so-called WEC conference at Duquesne University uh, in November, the uh, anniversary of the 60th assassination, 60-year assassination of, of President Kennedy. Uh, I think we won, we lost, uh, to tell you the truth, uh, we being the side of the truth. Um, the government still can't handle the truth. I wrote an op-ed. I was actually assigned uh, by the op-ed, the, the opinion department of the New York Times, to write uh, an essay about Kennedy, President Kennedy, at six years, what we know about the assassination. Uh, my editor, I think, liked the piece. They'd run a piece by me a month earlier on Senator Dianne Feinstein and her death. Uh, it went up the chain of command of the New York Times, and they spiked it. They didn't. They chose not to run it. 
It was very kind, too kind, I believe, to the New York Times, actually, because the Times has been a part of this cover-up, a key part of the cover-up for some six decades, uh, as as the Washington Post and the rest of the mainstream media. So, um, yes, the documentary by the doctors was very important, very good. Yes, Paul Andes, the Secret Service agent, blowing... Uh, I think to smithereens, the magic bull theory, uh, based on his eyewitness testimony, he found the magic bullet on the, on the rear of the uh, presidential limousine. It did not uh, magically cause all these exit entry wounds in the President Kennedy and uh, Texas Governor John Connolly. Knew that was a pack of lies, but he, uh, I think, laid it to rest for all time with his t uh, testimony, his book. So there were some breakthroughs uh, that we can applaud, but the establishment, strangely, media 60 years later has stuck with its story, and the story is more tattered than ever. We know that Lee Harvey Oswald was framed for the murder. We know he was a patsy, which is what he shouted at to the media uh, when he was under arrest in Dallas. Uh, we know he was a kid who was a low-level agency, and he was framed for this terrible crime, uh, and he's gone down history along with other uh, notorious assassins. But Oswald is innocent. He didn't kill Kennedy. So um, who killed Kennedy, frankly, as we said, as a number of people who signed my statement that I organized in 2019, including Dr. McClellan, one of the doctors at Parkland Hospital who worked on the mortally wounded president, said that he was shot from uh, both directions, from behind and the front. Uh, K is a victim of a national security conspiracy, as all four of these great leaders that we talked about earlier were, uh, Martin and Malcolm and Bobby. So uh, they wanted those leaders removed for political reasons, and they did. They uh, removed them from us, from the public forever. And uh, they went down as kind of saints, but they were martyrs to a political cause. Uh, they were not, uh, you know, this kind of noble uh, icons that they, we've been led to believe. They were more than that. They were trying to change this country, and they were killed for a reason. So I think the Kennedy assassination, I, I still am shocked and stunned and pissed off and angry that the media, corporate media, refuses to accept the truth at this late stage. Yeah. I'm a little more optimistic because I feel that it is directly tied to, they're more honest about it this year than they have been in years past, and they actually pointed out there were a few things. I mean, Paramount is not a, a small network. That's like one of the big, they're, they're owned by one of the big parent companies, you know. Um, and they put that out there. Uh, I feel that, of course, they're not going to really let the dam break on this, but I also feel like the reason that there's, it seems to be breaking a little bit is that the apex of power, which committed this crime is floundering so badly. I feel that the fact that there's still interest in it and that they're still talking about it and they're still admitting, and the times is basically saying, gosh, this seems to change everything we thought we knew which is on the one hand totally disingenuous, but on the other hand is optimistic or it, it, it points to something positive that they're at least acknowledging it. I think that uh, the, it's the apex of power. It's, it's, the, it's the hegemonic 
uh, re regime, really, that did this, obviously, and that's how they can cover it up. And as they are teetering, as they are getting weaker, more of the truth is starting to come out in, in or be allowed to be cut to, to come out. And so if we extrapolate, I think that there's reason to think it's possible that as the empire gets weaker and weaker uh, and, and crumbles and the hegemony uh, uh, evaporates, it would be it could potentially allow for more of these things to but be. Aaron, I understand be your sanitary. argument. I, I understand your argument, and I, I applaud you being so positive about this. But I don't see this national dialogue about the empire falling actually entering into politics at all. Bobby Kennedy has introduced it somewhat, and yet, as we'll talk about later, Bobby Kennedy Jr. is terrible in Israel. Israel is now, become, I think, the focal point of the U.S. empire overseas. And so this national dialogue, unfortunately, is not happening as it should. We're relegated to a podcast that only a few people see or listen to. So, uh, yes, we talk among ourselves how the empire uh, is facing historic uh, conflicts and, and contradictions. But this national dialogue is not happening. It should be happening in the Republican debates. Instead, we're hearing, oh, let's kill all the terrorists. Let's kill the drug cartels in Mexico. Uh, it's ridiculous what the rhetoric of the Republican Party at the national level. And the Democrats are even worse. They double down Biden on Ukraine and Gaza. They're more militaristic than ever. The military-industrial complex runs this country. Wall Street runs this country. There is no national dialogue that you would like. I think that will save this country. Uh, you know, is there a peaceful resolution to the U.S. empire? That's what we should be debating. And how do we wind it down? Instead, we're debating how we can be more aggressive, more interventionist overseas. So I, I really don't share your optimism about this. So my, I, my optimism isn't on the U.S., the way that the U.S. is rationally handling the collapse of the empire. My optimism is about the fact that whatever is really being discussed in the U.S., the empire is collapsing one way or the other, and its collapse is not dependent upon the U.S. establishment acknowledging it or talking about it. They do seem to be, as you say, in denial mode still, having a make-believe conversation about uh, the world as they wish that it would could be, and that somehow corresponds perhaps to events that are actually happening. But, of course, it's a ridiculous conversation. But the reality is going on, is proceeding apace, no matter how stupid the U.S. conversations are. So that's really where I see the hope, not so much in a sea change one in more the thing. actual national hear, discussion, which is utter shit, of course. I, I want to hear you and Bryce on this because you are much more connected to academia and the educational system. It seems to me that in my day, we had the birth of an anti-war movement on campus during the Vietnam War, in the teach-ins that were allowed to happen on many college campuses across the country in 1965 and 1966, that led to SDS and this huge anti-war movement in the streets. Those teach-ins were very important historically. Any effort to do the same in Gaza, and the New York Times said, oh, it's just like Vietnam, it's bullshit. Any effort by the students to create that kind of dialogue at Gaza right now is repressed, is shut down by the Israel lobby. They're so powerful, 
the media in this country censor any students who attempt to have that kind of open dialogue about Gaza, about what we should do, about the Palestinians who are suffering, who are uh, killed, massacred by Israel's defense with our weapons that we pay for. So uh, I don't see this national dialogue happening. I see something quite different. I see a censoring, I see a curtailing, I see a repression, I see a shouting down of any protest in this country. And I'm really uh, upset about it. Yeah, so Bryce, the- Bryce, speak to this about the campus, because you can, you're in a better position than me even. Yeah, well, more immediately about the campus, I think you're right that there is a, a high level of repression uh, against student organizers who are talking about Palestine. Uh, but it's not as uh, as a you know, campus, you know, a student pro-Palestine organizer, at least in Indiana, it's not as repressive as it looks to be in the Ivy Leagues. The Ivy Leagues, it seems that they're going insane, that they have a lot of donors, that there's a lot of external pressure uh, from organizations, national and local and all these, uh, you know, the the Israel lobby. They're coalescing to harass these students, harass the voices that, you know, speak reason uh, about Palestine. And uh, that's had serious consequences. Some student groups have been banned around the country, uh, but other student other student groups around the country are able to have these discussions. Other faculties around the country are more sympathetic to the Palestinians. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, you know the polls for young people and how what they feel about the conflict, well, they feel a lot differently than people over sixty do. They feel a lot more sympathy towards the Palestinians. And, and that, that goes for that goes for Jewish people too. Oh yeah, especially especially uh, young Jewish students. Like they they certainly are more uh, critical of Israel than previous generations. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, the organization of pro-Palestinian student organizations, like Students for Justice in Palestine, has been a big help. But the uh, the I'll call it a democratization of information with the with an asterisk, of course. Uh, but the the social media has allowed narratives to be presented to students that they've never that were never allowed to be so easily accessible before. And I think that there's a lot of reason for hope on that front. Maybe at the Ivy Leagues, where uh, you know people matter <laughs> a, a great deal more, there's a lot more energy focused on the repression. Uh, but elsewhere in the country, which still has some impact, I think you're seeing an unprecedented level of uh, uh, you know, organizing and consciousness. Uh, just from a personal example, uh, in 2018, me and uh, some friends, we founded IU, Indiana University's first Palestine Solidarity Committee. And, you know, at our call-out meeting, we were outnumbered by pro-Israel students. Well, uh, this year, when we had our call-out meeting, there were 200 people who showed up. We're having marches, we're having demonstrations, we're having teach-ins, we're having a lecture series, speaker series, we're having a you know, talks on human rights, uh, the the law schools having panels about whether or not Israel's committing uh, genocide or ethnic cleansing. It's, you know, remarkable compared to what it was five years ago. So I think there's a lot of reason for hope on that front. But to run it back a little bit more on the, the JFK stuff, uh, I have a, a somewhat similar take to both of you in the sense that the coverage has been a lot better this year than in previous years by, a, you know, a wide margin. Way better than the 50th. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was looking back and looking at some of the articles of the 50th. I mean, some of those are when I, after I read your book, I went and read some of the uh, the big articles from the 50th trying to like debunk the conspiracies and whatnot. 
Well, now people are a lot more sympathetic to that point of view, even if they don't gr fully grasp the implications of that. Uh, you know, you'll hear mainstream media talk uh, again, like you said, this might change our point of view of this monumentous event in history. They're not going to do anything about it, but they're talking about it. And that is something. But what's concerning to me is that there do seem to be a lot of, you know, uh, alternative voices who are taking this on. Uh, in my mind, I'm thinking of like people, people like Tucker Carlson, who is not to be trusted and un under any circumstances. But he had some of the best JFK coverage, uh, a similar curiosity to how he had some of the best Ukraine coverage. And so it seems to me that a lot of the sentiment that will be generated by understanding the truth about these events, a lot of that anti-establishment sentiment is being channeled into places where it might not be that useful, is being channeled into places like Tucker Carlson, like Alex Jones, uh, like the like people who whose critique of the system isn't as robust as, you know, some, some of ours, it really extends to, you know, you can't trust the system. And then what they do is pay, they provide a scapegoat for the system. That seems to be the most, uh, the most monumental shift in how we talk about these issues and how the public national conversation about the deep political system is going. It seems to be being co-opted by voices like Tucker Carlson, who seem to be inter integral parts of that deep political system. And so uh, <laughs> we talk about the decline of the American empire, and we talk about uh, you, you know the, the truth of American empire sort of being forced on the American people uh, by virtue of the empire not being able to hide it anymore. Uh, but uh, I've voiced these concerns to Aaron in the past, uh, and I haven't really flushed it out much, but it seems that there might be uh, some sort of controlled American glasnost where these old secrets, these old, these old scandals, these old conspiracies are brought to light, but the the way that the the conversation surrounding them, the way that the conversation is handled, is managed by people who can't be trusted, who lead people again back into the same establishment arms that they purport to be fighting, uh, like, you know, like Donald Trump. You know the the whole narrative that he was fighting the deep state. Well, he called out a lot of real deep state chicanery, but he's not the answer. He's not going to fight them in any serious way. He's not going to be, he's not going to uh, seriously challenge the true structures of power. He challenges liberal sensibilities, and uh, that seems to be the worst of it. Uh, it so it, it seems to me that there's something weirder going on with the nature of this 60th anniversary coverage and its implications. I mean, uh, one more thing is that. Even 9-11 seems to be having this effect as well. Uh, I don't follow the Republican primary very closely because I think it's all stupid. But uh, the candidate, Vivek Ramaswamy. No, Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley's there. She's she's brilliant. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Intellectual type. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, he was talking openly mm -hmm. about 9-11 uh, and about Omar al-Bayoumi and the chicanery uh, with the hijackers and how, and how the the evidence points to like direct Saudi involvement that was covered up by the United States. Now that's a, a major crime that's being and talked he's, about. Uh, he's, uh, he's more or less accurate. I mean, we've covered that well, ben, I, ben Howard and Peter and I wrote those big articles and you know, other people have done work in this as well. Yeah. He gets the broad strokes, right. But uh, he, he's a little wrong on the details sometimes. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's just because, you know, they're complicated as hell, but, uh, but again, he's not a figure that's going to lead us into any sort of, reckoning with the military industrial complex with the 
the deep political power that actually governs this country. He's a stooge. And I mean, that's pretty obvious to most people, or most serious people, but, you know, Republicans like their anti-establishment candidates. If he's able to capture some of that sentiment with some part of, you know, the electorate, with some part of the political body in this country, well, then that's going to take a lot of energy from the serious progress that we need uh, to seriously address the issues that arise from the, the assassinations of the 60s, from uh, 9-11, from Russiagate, from Ukraine, from Israel, from all of this stuff. Uh, so it's it's optimism in a way because the space is open, but it's pessimism because that space seems to be co-opted by uh, untrustworthy individuals and voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know what they're going to do about these these sort of collapsing... And the aliens. I don't know that they have a plan. I think that you're you're right that they do have just they've tried to, in a way, shitcoat these things by having people like Alex Jones, Ramaswamy, Tucker talk about them, and in and it, it strips them from what they really are, which was a sort of deep seated right wing fascistic force in the regime that's there to crush the left and to crush democracy, which is really democracy is itself is more of a leftist idea. It's the idea that the, the people rather than a tiny elite of power should uh, r- run the country or have sovereignty. And so those assassinations and other crimes, these were done to affect a very right-wing agenda. And when you have right-wingers talking about it, it is a way to muddle the conversation and make it kind of incoherent. But, the, the, but, and they are masters at manipulating and making us inert and atomized and, and useless politically in the U.S. So we can just accept that. But what is interesting to me and what is something that is going to lead to things that I cannot predict is that they are their ability to manage the bigger project, which is the international system, is they are, everything that they think that they're so clever about doing, like expanding NATO or using the Arab Spring to like start wars in Syria and, and so on, or make up WMD lies about Iraq to start that war. These are all backfiring on them and hurting them and so these other whatever chicanery they're planning here is it really dealing with their fundamental legitimacy crisis and i don't think that it is i don't think it's reversing anything they are stupefying us and if there's one thing that they can do pretty well it's stupefy a lot of the population and or atomize us so that we're not really able to form a consensus against the establishment and they can do that, and that's why it's it. That's why I think what's going to bring the U.S. down is not coming from within, and that's hard for us to accept if we think like let's do something and make the world a better place, because we're not able to, and this is this is frustrating. Well, I I think yes, Bryce put his finger on when he said there's reason for some hope. Uh, the teachings, the group that he founded at Indiana University, how that has progressed. And now hundreds of people are, are coming to seek the truth about the Palestine and Israel is heartening. Uh, I love to hear that. It's, it's good news. But you're right. Uh, the dialogue is very fragmented and it's led by people we can't really trust. Uh, so there is no true national dialogue about the future of this country, not in the pre- presidential campaign, uh, not anywhere, not in the media, certainly the corporate media. It's fragmented podcasts, social media programs like this. So uh, and people have to seek it out. Um, Bobby Kennedy has attempted, I think, to analyze what is ailing the country, Bobby Kennedy Jr. and Cornell West. 
was uh, polling at a much lower number, obviously. And uh, but Bobby is uh, stupefied to use your word, Aaron, on Israel. And so that is uh, impossible through his campaign to uh, to, you know, to enlighten people uh, about what's happening. And why? He's very good on Ukraine, not good on Israel. It's weird. I don't get it. And we can talk about that some more. You know why uh, that contradiction exists. But there's no one place, I think, and I was hoping the Bobby Kennedy campaign would do this to enlighten the American people about what faces at this point. And I, believe me, as an American, I don't want the Houthis or I don't want, uh, you know, uh, people in South Africa to bring justice to the world. I want to be part of that process I, as an American, as someone who pays taxes that create these terrible weapons that kill people in Gaza, that kill people in Ukraine. I want to have a voice in this, as you do. So uh, I don't see that happening at the national level at this point. No, I don't. But this, the younger people give me some hope. And also, let's, if you want to talk about a ripple of hope, as you just did, I'd say we could look to the people of South Africa, and they just submitted to the International Court of Justice uh, something to deal with the situation in Gaza. And this is epic because they are the original apartheid state, and so they have a certain uh, amount of gravitas and standing to be able to do something that, like this. They have instituted proceedings against the state of Israel, and re they request the court to in indicate provisional measures. So uh, they are taking their filing uh, under the Genocide Convention. Um, they are wanting to, pre they presented this to the International Court of Justice, the principal judicial organ of the UN, violations uh, of Israel under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide uh, in relation to Palestinians in the Gaza Strip Bryce, uh, our our friend um, Sam Husseini has been talking about this for a long time, and uh, I think he was on Twitter and saying he's kind of sick and and spent the, some of the time in bed and then heard about this and it perked him up a little bit. So we'll try to get Sam on here maybe at some point soon. But uh, what is what do, based on what you have followed about this story, what is the significance of this? All right. The, well, so over the past, you know, during this uh, this assault on Gaza. There have been several countries around the world who have not taken the, the U.S.'s lead and voiced unconditional support for Israel. They've uh, condemned uh, Israel. They've called it genocide. They've uh, kicked out Israel's, uh, you know, ambassadors from their country. All good signs. You know, the Houthis, they've, uh, you know, blockaded the, the Red Sea. Uh, but they haven't initiated the legal proceedings that could have, uh, you know, more significant effects. The Genocide Convention works by uh, allowing, there there are, I think, 149 uh, parties to the Genocide Convention, and any one of them can invoke the convention to call for direct actions to stop and intervene in an ongoing genocide. Um, so what this means is that any one of them has the power to call for that. None of them have until South Africa. Now, what this means is that all the parties are obligated to intervene. Uh, but if they disagree with the interpretation of the Genocide Convention, then that means that they're going to have to adjudicate it. But it, it, it doesn't mean it means that instead of stonewalling an investigation or stonewalling a call for action by the UN, any one of these countries could have just called for uh, 
invoked the genocide convention, which would have called for proceedings that would hash out the disagreements among the parties. Uh, and South Africa has decided to do that. So what's coming next, I think, is going to be a showdown between the the people who are serious in the ICJ and the people who are unserious with respect to the ICJ. Um, you know, the, the U.S. has, a, you know, the Hague Invasion Act for its own boys. Uh, but, I mean, Israel is... Uh, part and parcel of the American empire. So they definitely have something up their sleeve. Uh, we, we've seen with these international bodies, uh, diplomats being threatened, you know, John Bolton infamously fam- uh, like threatened the families of, uh, uh, of a diplomat with respect to voting for Iraq. Uh, there's a Bastani Bastani. Is that the guy's name? They, they I, I want to like, say we will kill you if you keep trying to mess up our war plans. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, John Bolton's back in the news, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> Um, but the, the fact that they can call for this genocide convention is pretty significant. It means that they're forcing something to happen for some accounting to happen and for Israel and America to defend itself in a internationally recognized forum of law. I mean, that's, then, yes. that's pretty major. That That is huge. You know, Norm Finkelstein wrote a book about the, uh, uh, I want to say this was the ICC, prosecutor. Uh, who had all this evidence of Israeli war crimes and then decided not to prosecute. Uh, but, you know, that evidence that he brings will be among the... Uh, it, it'll be a similar proceeding to that. It'll it'll be a, uh, a tribunal that has the ability to evaluate a bunch of evidence and then make a decision. And based on that decision, we'll see who's serious and who's not. So it's a pretty big moment for understanding the... I guess the the contours of uh, the global new Cold War, or or multi emerging multipolarity and how international institutions might be used to enforce international law and to stop some of these the the sort of criminal status quo that the U.S. has actively maintained, uh, you know, over for decades. I mean, this is really this is really something. This is more or less what, uh, what China and Russia I, are calling for. Yeah. Again, Bryce and, and Aaron, I wish I shared your optimism uh, about this, but I believe as well-meaning and as aggressive as the international political machinery has been in condemning the actions of Israel and Gaza, as they should, uh, for matters, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, the Vatican uh, made threats to the Soviet Union in the days of Stalin. Stalin said, how many uh, regiments does the Pope have? Um, how many regiments uh, are in South Africa willing to send to the Middle East? How many regiments is the UN willing to send there? Armed people. So you're right, it is the focal point of the US empire right now, the Middle East. And it's gonna do, it's gonna kill as many people as it feels necessary. Netanyahu, to, in my mind, is a war criminal, is a gangster, is a thug. And there will never be peace in that part of the world unless he's dragged in chains uh, from his office and put on trial for the war crimes he's committed. He and the other IDF generals and the religious extremists in his coalition. That is part, I think, driving the kind of uh, uh, evil that we're seeing unfold in the Middle East right now. 
unless he's deposed, there is no chances. He was about to be deposed by the people in the street in Israel. There were were hundreds of thousands of protesters against Netanyahu's regime. He was hanging on politically by a thread before the war in Gaza. Do you think he allowed the Hamas militants to enter to invade Israel? I do. I think it saved his ass politically, that war. He was about to fall. And now he's riding high because of what uh, is happening in Gaza, the bloodshed there. So he's an evil man until he's removed, until the U.S., until President Biden has the balls to stand up to him and say no more aid to you, no more military weapons to you until you actually go to the negotiating table. Will we have peace there? It's what happened in uh, Northern Ireland as well. The Catholics and Protestants continue to kill each other until people who are stronger than they said, you're going to go to the negotiating table and you're, you'll have peace. And the people there were so sick of the war, so sick of the bombing in Ireland, they finally came to that table and they have uneasy peace to the very day. That's what it takes. And until the U.S. shows the leadership to do that, no matter what the UN or South Africa or the Houthis do, really will matter a lot. If it does become a regional conflict, that's a different situation. The US does not want the Middle East to explode. It's not in our you know, geopolitical interest for that to happen. We're deathly afraid that will happen. So the Houthis lobbing a few missiles and drone strikes uh, in the Red Sea is a problem. They don't want to expand. Uh, but you know, I you know, I'm very negative, very uh, uh, pessimistic about the UN bringing peace there. I think you know, it's up to us. Frankly, it's up to us saying the youth vote in this country, saying you're going to lose President Biden in key battleground states unless you shift on Israel, unless you do what's right on Israel. And that's why I'm so dismayed by what's happened in the Bobby Kennedy campaign. I think he could go from 20 points to 30 points overnight if he said what was correct on Israel. The youth vote would, would gather around him, would coalesce around Bobby Kennedy for president if he did that. If he broke from the consensus, the power consensus on Israel, he hasn't had the courage to do that yet. So I'm praying that he does as a supporter of Bobby, as someone who has uh, backed him. I believe he uh, has the intellect and the vision to do that if he decides to do it. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if on the most salient and significant issue of the day, he stubbornly uh, insists on doing the immoral and unpopular thing, then I think that he's going to have to live with that, and it's going to it's going to lead to his defeat, and it's going to make him look very bad in the eyes of history. It will be a sad footnote to the Kennedy family and their contributions. Uh, I don't really think that you can say I don't think that you're going to really persuade people, even though I think it's true. He could say, you know, I might be pro genocide, but I'm not pro omnicide meaning that he at least supposed not having nuclear war with uh, Russia or China, which I think gives him a, a real advantage over Trump and, Bi- and Biden, if you wanted to look at it honestly. But people just don't really want a pro-genocide president anymore. I think that they're disgusted by it, and anyone who's paying attention and is, is moral and activated uh, intellectually and politically is 
horrified at Israel and people are looking at Israel anew and they're saying, why does, what is Israel? Why does Israel exist? Why is this, there's this craziness around it? Why do people, you know, rich people driving down the street uh, like that? There's a, a, a thing that's going around on Twitter that from a little bit after October 7 of some woman saying like that your children, because she, somebody had a Palestinian flag on their car and she said, well, you should be raped in front of your children and ki killed in the street or something to that effect. What is this insanity? And now we, and yet we have three politicians all saying like, uh, uh, who, who really seem to love Israel more than they love themselves. It's really quite something. Uh, and so where does, you know, where does this go? I don't know. But there are, there is the sign of life from uh, the, uh, the people in South Africa, the South African nation state. And it, it reminds us of Americans who did try to fight for this uh, for Americans. And they, want, they made that connection years ago about charging genocide. They wanted to use the Genocide Convention to charge the American government with brutalizing uh, black people in America. So Paul Robeson had this idea, or Paul Robeson and others um, presented this to the UN in the, in the 50s. Of course, this did not make Robeson popular with the US establishment, of course. And Malcolm X had this idea too, which probably contributed to his assassination. Um, Paul Robeson wasn't assassinated. He was just rendered a non-person, which is was horrific because and he drunk, was such an amazing individual. Yeah. He was drunk yeah. and rendered, in, I think, insane by uh, his opposition. I mean, he paid, paid a political price as well, Paul Robeson. Anyone who Absolutely. stands up to the American Empire, particularly abroad during the Cold War, uh, was putting their life at risk. Yeah, I mean, because they still do this today. The, the American Western imperialism, which is more or less like white supremacy, but with whiteness really being synonymous with like the corporate power of Western imperialism. Uh, they know, they understand that this is not a, a good look for them. And so they, they do things like the guy at the UN doing the whitest thing ever, which is vetoing uh, something to stop genocide, a colonial genocide. Uh, they have a black guy do it. So they know they're vulnerable on this. The way they handle this now is by having a black, having it be like a, a black person at the UN vetoing the, you know, stop the genocide measure. And then in the past, they repressed people like Malcolm X or Paul Robeson, who were highlighting uh, to the rest of the world just how racist America is. So uh, hats off to the people that uh, want to stand up to this and, and highlight the, uh, you know, the racism and militarism and, and violence of the U.S. empire. Uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's weird to see uh, again going back to the uh, the RK Junior moment and the the fact that there are so many there there's there, there, it's a major opportunity to distinguish yourself as an anti-establishment candidate. Like you said, he would go from twenty points to thirty points overnight. Could be even bigger than that, depending on how he handles it. It's it's disappointing that that's not happening. And uh, again, we were talking. We were talking about how we won't, aren't going to figure out why. I mean, like you know him, David, but you're not like you know in his in his ear all the time. Uh, and so it's just it's it's difficult to see how he is able to thread this needle, you know, of uh, building himself as an anti-imperialist, of having a critique of empire, uh, and yet remaining resolute on this issue of Israel. And it's not just that he's, you know, remaining silent and that he's going with the dominant consensus. He's actually lurched to the far right of this issue. 
He's actively parroting pro-Israeli talking points. He's actively uh, going on and accusing people of being anti-Semitic for singling out the Jews for criticizing Israel. Uh, I, that there's no explanation that makes perfect sense. Uh, but you know, we've talked about the uh, the influence of uh, you know the Israel lobby. Uh, we talked about like Epstein sexual blackmail or Epstein type sexual blackmail. We've talked about the uh, the the other the other ways that you know he could be influenced. And we've also gone over the possibility that he is a true believer, but I don't think any of us believe that he's a true believer on the, on these points. No one as well read and as well spoken as Bobby Kennedy is would uh, say the things he's saying. He's read, he's certainly read about the history. He certainly knows about, uh, you know, he certainly knows about the human rights reports. He certainly knows about the atrocities. And when he was talking with Crystal Ball the other day, he was just going through the pro-Israeli talking points. Crystal, you know, bless her heart, she was swatting them down. Uh, but RFK Jr., he was resolute. And, and so that, it, it, it's just a bizarre moment that you have one of the few times in American history where a third party credibly challenges the, the two-party duopoly system. And on the issue of the day, he's, uh, you know, it, right alongside the, the most hawkish uh, faction of the American establishment. That's let's talk the about irony this. Moment is I, I really think it's important. What is the reason Bobby is so wrong about Israel right now? And it's this made me of us who are his friends and supporters. I personally appealed to him. He was the one time he didn't reply to me in an email that I sent him when the war first broke out there. So let's let's conjecture a bit about this because I think it's very important, very interesting. So I watched that interview he gave to Crystal Ball, and I had a somewhat different conclusion than you did, Bryce. I actually felt even more depressed because I felt Bobby, in talking as he did, in using, as you say, uh, the far right Israel talking points, was actually a true believer. I actually believe that he, I know the guy I've known for a long time, was speaking the truth. You're right that he is more intelligent and more courageous than any political leader in America today. Um, Biden just denied him a third time, by the way, secret service protection. Hmm. They killed his dad. They assassinated his dad. A guy with guns showed up at an L.A. campaign event long ago, not far from where Bobby Kennedy's father was killed. Uh, and Biden still, even though he's polling at over 20%, uh, refuses him Secret Service protection. He gives it to his near-do-well son, Hunter. Hunter Biden gets Secret Service protection. Bobby Kennedy doesn't. You figure it out. So I know for a fact, when I first asked if he would run for public office some 20 years ago, he said his kids were still growing up. He was 14 when they killed his father. He said he wouldn't do that to his children. Uh, when they were growing up. I respected that. I understood it. And uh, so now he is running. And he's running without the protection of the Secret Service, as faulty as they are. They provide some protection. Some agents do. So um, he's forced to pay out of his pocket, out of his campaign money, 
for private security. Gavin DeBecker is providing his security, a well-known international consultant. I know the one thing that matters to Bobby is the security of his kids and his family, his wife, and so on. That matters a lot to him. So if they are all at risk, he's willing probably to compromise with the people who provide him security, who guard his life and the life of those he loves the most. So I understand somewhat that explanation for why he may be uh, as compromised as he is on Israel when it comes down to security of his family. That's life and death stuff. That's heavy stuff. So um, I understand that, but he hasn't said that ever. He actually stands with the intellectual argument, such as is, for Israel, what it's doing in Gaza to the Palestinian people. And I actually believe, when I saw that interview with Crystal Ball, that he believed this bullshit. And that was more depressing to me than anything, that he actually believed it. It wasn't that he's being bribed or blackmailed or, you know, bankrolled by these people. It's actually he believed. So um, you can't f argue with a true believer. That's the one area I think that Bobby is maybe religious on. He's so scientific, as he says, in other things, in um, criticizing Anthony Fauci, in criticizing uh, Big Pharma takeover of Washington, um, all those shit he's accused of being a nut for, uh, you know, being a critic of unsafe vaccines, unsafe medicine, stuff that he should be applauded for, uh, but is criticized by the stupid media because they're supported by advertising from Big Pharma. Big farmers become way too powerful in this country. Uh, all those areas, he's right on, as far as I can tell. He may be wrong here or there, but his basic argument about big pharma and the rest of the corporate takeover of Washington is right on. Thank God a national politician is finally saying that. But he's dead wrong about Israel. And um, I think he's intellectually wrong. That's my conclusion at this point. And so, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it means you can be maybe dissuaded intellectually from that weird position he's taken. Uh, but if it's a religious one, uh, it's harder to change someone's thinking. And it, it does have the quality of a religious kind of uh, embrace of what Israel is doing. Yeah. Well, that, that's I don't the thing. Know that if he, he can believe it, though, if I, I, I think of it like this: if you, the old axiom that you can't convince a man to believe something, uh, or you can't disabuse someone of an idea if their salary depends on you know believing it. Based on what you're saying, David, can you can can you disabuse someone of an idea when the lives of himself and his family are at stake if he doesn't believe it? I mean, I, I think that. This is this is a person who has tried to look into the dark side of this regime and the apex of power within it that killed his own father and uncle, and I think that he understands that a pal that the that there's significance to the fact that it was a Palestinian patsy that was used in the plot to murder his father. Uh, I think would guess that he has re yes, Sirhan, Sirhan, and I would guess he has real suspicions about whether Israel would have been involved in JFK Jr.'s death, because I think that that is possible, that that nexus of like super militarists 
in both the U.S. establishment and the pro-Israel establishment would have been not happy about his, I mean, now looking at what he was writing about and what George was courageously publishing about the Rabin assassination, which is, which involves Bibi, you know, and his, that faction that really did, that wanted to destroy the peace process. Um, I, I just, I feel that he cannot be clueless about this. He has to understand, it's, it's so perfect in that the most, uh, the most bitter end element of the constituencies of within the deep state, which I see as a sort of pluralistic thing of different factions and so on, the the one that is the most probably intransigent and the one that is the most existentially tied to U.S. empire is Israel. And how strange that they are the the most. Uh, perhaps the one most willing to do anything because they, everything is an existential kind of religious eschatological thing for them. Uh, and they're the most tied to the U S empire and the most tied to like corrupt lobbying, all these issues that he is standing against with the rest of his campaign. And yet on this one, he is more or less, I'm not, I'm just going to say whatever they want, whatever they want me to say. What does he think is going to happen if he wins and he unwinds the American empire? What does he think is going to happen to Israel? This is why people are like saying to him, this is not coherent. This is not congruent with the rest of what you're saying. He's way smarter than you would need to be to understand it. I mean, I think I explained it pretty straightforwardly in just a few sentences. So where, what is, how is he going to reconcile this and how is he going to save, uh, revive uh, his campaign, which seems kind of stuck at the moment because the energy for like reform is so against him. Uh, and nobody is excited about this campaign uh, who's not a true believer already. If the people that are the most activated are just basically calling the boycott elections, or I don't even know what they think to do. The, uh, you know, it's it, it, they they understand that this is a, a terrible situation. But what do you do? There's three candidates, and all of them are bad on this the, this very crucial, viscerally horrifying issue. Yeah, and to your point about uh, whether or not he if he's intellectually committed to Israel, uh, I think that is the more depressing of the two. They're both depressing, right? The the fact, the idea that the power of the lobby is somehow able to convince uh, a reformer to uh, be silent or actively enlist him in the service of genocide. Now that's depressing. What's more depressing is that this man actually believes that he can reconcile ideas of anti-imperialism with a pro-Israel stance. And if that is true, like you say, that he is intellectually committed to Israel, well, then that calls into question his entire seriousness about his critique of empire. If you can square that circle of supporting Israel and being critical of American empire, uh, then your analysis has to be just completely out of whack. And that if, if again, if it's true, then that means that when he's talking about dismantling the empire, when he's talking about a soft landing uh, from Pax Americana, well, when he's talking about those things, he's talking about something completely different than what you or I uh, would be talking about when that happens, which I think is m more depressing. It, it means that he's a, it means that there was never an RFK Jr. that was serious about these things to begin with. Uh, now, I don't know if that's the case, but I think that that's kind of more depressing, that there was never, <laughs> that not only a, uh, the, the fact that we don't have a chance with him or if we don't have a chance with him is more depressing than we do have a chance, but the powers that be are just using the means that we already know about.
does that does that make sense? Yeah, it, yeah. it does. I, I would add the one glimmer of hope that I saw in the interview, and that was the most extensive I saw him talk about Israel, uh, the interview with Crystal Ball. And you're right, Bryce, she did ask him a lot of tough questions, and he got more and more kind of uh, dug in his heels as the interview went on. But he did say the one glimmer of hope was that he was very critical, I think on more than one occasion, of the Netanyahu regime. He said, don't die to Netanyahu. I think the Israel in Bobby's mind is Rabin's Israel, frankly, pre-Netanyahu, when the Labor Party and the peace process was still intact. And it, it's a very different Israel now, as the people in the street in Israel knew. Uh, no, uh, Netanyahu is hung on to power by aligning himself with the most extreme, most religious, fanatical, fanatical religious people possible. His coalition includes racists, includes supremacists, uh, includes religious nuts. And so Netanyahu will do anything to stay in power, anything. And so until he's removed, as I said earlier, you won't have peace in the Middle East. Um, so uh, he's a major, major obstacle to that and the people around him, that government, that regime is part of the problem. So the Israel that Bobby lionizes, the only democratic state in the Middle East, you know, the only place where you can protest and not be killed or tortured, uh, is fast, is quickly uh, eroding under Danho. It's a di very different Israel. It's very militaristic, it's very religious, it's very exclusionist, and it's very anti-Palestinian. And until you have a solution that involves the Palestinians, that gives them human rights, uh, like the uh, ostensibly do in Ireland to both the Catholics and the Protestants, then you'll have conflict and, and suffering there. So um, I hope Bobby sees the light, but I agree with you, uh, Aaron. The, the campaign for president now has a weird kind of... Uh, contradictory and kind of stalled character. Uh, you have these nutcases in the Republican Party led by Trump, which does not confront the truth, as you said, both of you, uh, about what's ailing America. And then you have this old geriatric democratic DNC regime, which is equally militaristic, imperialistic, and doesn't uh, address what is really ailing our country either. That's why it's we dismiss many voters to dismiss Bidenomics as bullshit, as a complete charade, because Bidenomics basically glosses over the fact that most people are paycheck to paycheck in this country. And we're paying for this obscene military juggernaut, Ukraine now in Gaza at the same time. And we can't afford that anymore. We can't afford the American empire and to have a decent quality of life in this country. The two are antithetical. So unless uh, people say that and say clearly, Bobby says it in some ways, and you say, right on, Bobby, oh, great. But for the last two months, he's been saying bullshit about Israel, which contradicts everything he says about Ukraine and the rest of the American empire. It's the gorilla in the room. Until that gorilla is removed, Bobby Kennedy will not become president. I think it is a real 
challenge for him to deal with this issue. I don't know why he is so willfully painted himself in the corner now. And I don't think he, I think only he knows the answer to that, or probably a couple people around him might have some inkling. Um, I do have reasons to believe that he doesn't, that he actually does not believe uh, what he has been saying here. Uh, but I don't want to really want to try to expand on that too much. I just think that it is time to sometimes sit back and kind of be like, uh, I think Peter Dale Scott, our friend, has been able to do this after many decades and still look at these things by being able to distance himself in, a, in some sort of spiritual and psychic sense. And in this way, I think it's important to understand that it's not so much the personage of the, of the Kennedy campaign. And I am trying my, I'm not personally so invested with the individual or want having any kind of hero worship or anything. It's a recognition that the head of state in the U.S. empire right now is going to be very crucial to having a better way of unwinding this very dangerous imperial epic that we have been living through. Uh, and so this is where his candidacy is still the only hope because there is really no hope for anything positive from the Democrats or Republicans, but his campaign seems to be in this weird stasis because of the, uh, the this Israel question. And if he can rise to the occasion, then there is some hope there. And, and for this reason, uh, we should, you know, hope for this to happen. And it's, to me, notable that the same reason I think we see Israel acting so crazy and going really for a, a campaign that is that exceeds the Nakba in its scope, uh, which was a horrific campaign in 1948. I mean, this has killed more and displaced more people. Uh, the reason that we're seeing this now is the same reason that we see a, a, a candidacy like Bobby Kennedy. It's the, un, it's the unraveling of U.S. hegemony and these two projects, the U.S. empire and Zionism, and the in the U.S. side, one symptom is a, a third-party challenge to a corrupt duopoly, and that's the Kennedy campaign that has some traction despite having some problems, you know, within it. Now, in on it with Israel, I think that they look at what's happening and they see that their standing internationally is not going to uh, allow them to indefinitely. Uh, have dominance over over the whole area that they want to dominate. And so they seem to have been looking for a pretext to do what they have done here. I don't think there's any other way to, to explain what we have seen in Gaza because it makes no sense from a counterterrorism or counterinsurgency or national defense perspective. It really only makes sense as a ethnic cleansing campaign for greater Israel, which you can find people stating more or less explicitly in many places going back many years and so it really is quite straightforward what's happening and uh you have to be willfully blind to not see it and that describes all three of our presidential candidates and i wish it weren't the case but if it is then i think that it will fall to the rest of the world to uh to, to bring down the curtain on this and uh i don't Think that the I don't think that the U.S. can really win. I think the U.S. can the U.S. side, Western imperialism and Zionism, can can they can keep a new world from emerging by blowing this one up. But I don't think that they can prevail short of that. I think that the, that they are on the path of losing, uh, and that that is where there is optimism. Even if we are not optimistic about the the presidential race in 2024, there's at least this in the long run. The U.S. is going the way of all empires, and they're going there. They seem to be going there rather hastily.
Bryce Green, David Talbot, thank you so much. Uh, I think we've gone on for enough today, so uh, we're going to call it a day. But thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for tuning in. Please visit fordivetrying.com and buy the prologue now on Amazon. Check out the show notes for a link to the Genocide and Empire panel on January 7. And please do subscribe to the American Exception podcast on Patreon for first access to all Devil's Chess Club episodes and for all new and past episodes of the American Exception podcast. I admit that I am somewhat amused by the fact that I may be more optimistic about things than Bryce or David. And I think the main reason for it is that I don't see a way that the Zionists or the U.S. can triumph in Palestine or Ukraine. And I see these horrific defeats as accelerating the end of these twin fascistic projects, both launched at the end of World War II after the supposed defeat of fascism. These two regimes are dying and a new world is being born. Death and birth are both violent. And so what we are living through is pretty horrifying. But this transition is, tragically, a precondition for human progress. It now seems that a better world will emerge. The main and very serious threat is that the U.S. Empire and or Zionists do something insane, like sparking nuclear doomsday or staging some sort of structural deep event, like cutting off the internet or a pandemic or some alien spectacle or something so nutty we won't see it coming. The bigger takeaway at the end of 2023 is that the Empire's defeat should be humanity's gain, unless the devil decides to knock over his own chessboard.